You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. If you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, we're going to look at the parable of the labors in the vineyard this morning. And uh, just to give you a little context, just remember the the uh, Gospels were written by evangelists and they wrote a letter and so often we'll pick passages out but they're in a context there's a flow a larger flow to each of the letters and here Jesus in chapter 19 had an interaction with a man who's known as a rich young man rich young ruler and uh, he he's very wealthy and he's very very religious devout and from a man's perspective keeping the law of God and he comes to Jesus but Jesus sees the heart and knows this man loves his money and his possessions more than he loves God. So Jesus says to him, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Sadly, the man goes away and doesn't do that because he does love his possessions and his money more than God. And uh, then Jesus talks about the camel and the eye of a needle. And when the disciples heard this, verse 25 of chapter 19, they were greatly astonished saying, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it's impossible, God, things are all possible. And then Peter replies and says, see, we have left everything and followed you. And it's true, the disciples had left everything. They, When Jesus called them, they walked away from their businesses and their income. They walked away from a lot of family responsibilities, had others pick those up. They lived with Jesus for three years, walked with him, followed him, uh, listened to his teaching. They had surrendered and sacrificed everything. And then Peter says, what then will we have? And that's a key question. What then will we have? Another translation says, what will there be for us? The for us is really the focus there. And it's out of response to that that Jesus tells the parable. It's not an uncommon question that we may be inclined to ask. What's in it for me? What's happening for me? Lord, I've sacrificed. uh, I've served. We serve in the church. We give up our income. And and, and kind of what's in it for me? And what's the... So the payback, sometimes we can think that way, sadly. Or perhaps you're struggling with, with trials and loss and suffering or loneliness, and other people aren't, and you're looking at that and thinking, I don't understand this. It doesn't make sense. And then uh, Jesus makes a promise there, whatever you've sacrificed, you'll receive a hundredfold. And then comes verse 30, but the many who are first will be last, and the last first. That's a proverb. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Now that is said in direct response to the apostles. Jesus is knowing the apostles' heart, his followers' heart, and he needs to correct something. Because you remember, three times he predicted he was gonna go to Jerusalem and be arrested and be crucified and be raised from the dead three days later. And three times in response, they argued amongst themselves of which of them would be the greatest. And they struggle with the heart attitude. And Jesus is going to address that, I think, here with our parable. So let's look at our parable now. Chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, the pay for a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour... He saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you or pay you. So they went, and going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. 
And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing and said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? He's not criticizing, he's just curious. Why are you still here? And they say to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard, my vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages. Key phrase here beginning with the last up to the first. You can see the tie-in with the proverb. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received the denarius. Now, when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at their master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. And he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I, gave, as I give to you. And he says this, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be the first and the first last. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, it's a joy to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ to worship. Thank you for communion, that reminder of the incredible gift of salvation, of the cross of Jesus Christ, of the price he paid because we chose to sin, of our redemption of our cleansing, of our forgiveness, of our eternal life. We thank you for all that you have done. As we look at this parable about grace, we've sung about grace, we've re reminded ourselves of the grace of the cross. I pray now through your word that you would press upon our hearts. You know each one here. You know what every person's thinking, where every person's at. Father, I pray you would take away the distractions of the day. Father, you would draw us in with your spirit. You would illuminate your wonderful word to us. Instruct, encourage, convict, and strengthen. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, I have the stereotypical sermon outline, three points. If you're a note taker, I'm keeping it simple. We've got the parable's particulars, the parable's problem, and the parable's purpose. That should make it easy for note taking. The particulars, the problem, and the purpose. So let's jump in. The parable's particulars, the details of it, verses 1 to 7. And again, reminder, the, the verse 30, the verse right in front, the last will be first and the first last. And as we read here, the last verse of the parable, he repeats that. The last will be first and the first last in verse 16. So you don't have to be that wide awake to see that an important truth this parable is teaching is, is reminded by the proverb bookending it. The last will be first and the first last. And he uses that language in the parable to connect in case we miss that. And so it's important to understand here. And if you think about this, the idea of the last first and the first last, it means regardless of how you've run and regardless of kind of your pace and your effort and your sacrifice, we all receive the same thing. Now, maybe that bothers you. Maybe that upsets you. Just in the news the last couple of weeks, there's been an account of a race that was run, the World University Games, and it was a woman's 100-meter race. I don't know if you've seen it. It's been in a bunch of the papers because one of the writer, runners from Somalia shouldn't have been running. She was not a runner. 
and she got in by nepotism and there was apologies after because they ran 100 meters and she was 10 seconds behind the winner. Now that's probably a pace I could almost run. And it was just not right. She shouldn't have been there. But what if they had have given her a, 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 a prize and say, you have tied the winner. You share in the winning of that. We would have said, that's wrong. That's not fair. And we tend to think that way. And Jesus is addressing an issue that his disciples had a problem with. They're thinking, we've sacrificed. What's in it for us? What are we going to get? We've left everything. And, and the problem is, and he knows it in their heart and mind, they're, they're comparing and they're kind of adding up all of theirs and we should get more and that whole mentality. And so Jesus tells this parable and so it begins in verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, the kingdom of heaven is like the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or the way of God, the will of God, the, the way God works. The way of God, not the way of the world, is like. It's like. He's going to take an everyday fictional story he creates that they can understand and help them apply principles to what God's way and God's kingdom is like. And so he says, first of all, a particular is the master. He says a master has a field and he's going to hire some workers. And we wouldn't use the term master these days, but we could say owner. He's the owner. We would say a farmer owner. He owns a vineyard. He owns property. He owns a farm. It's harvest time. And he has to get the crop off quickly, and he doesn't have enough workers. So in the story, the master obviously represents God. And then we have the laborers. They are known as day workers. It was common then. It's common still in many cultures today. We were in Los Angeles and for seminary, and I was working for London Life Insurance Company and going to seminary. But when I got there, they didn't have my visa ready, so I couldn't work for a semester. Well, living in L.A. is very expensive, and our savings were dwindling. And I saw some day workers. They would go out every morning, early in the morning, and stand at certain places, and farmers or construction people would come by and hire them for the day. And the Bible talks about it. Deuteronomy says, pay the day worker at the end of the day so they have the money for that day. They're, they're working for food. And so I went out and stood with the day workers one day. And people came by and picked up some people, not me. And others came by and picked up some more workers, not me. And I'm like, here am I, what's wrong with me? And I'd look at them and they'd look at me and they'd go, no way. And they'd pick up other workers. At the end of the day, I like went home, nobody picked me up. I didn't go out another day. I couldn't take that. But it's common sort of in cultures. And so here, that's what we have. The laborers here in the vineyard, they represent believers. All of them do. Now, sometimes, you know, there's different representative non-believers and believers, Jews and Gentiles, etc. But here, I think the laborers, all of them represent believers. And so I think that's important to understand here. It's also important to understand the timeline in the parable because there's six references to time. We have in verse 1, early in the morning. That's 6 a.m. Their workday started at 6 a.m. I don't mean they got up at 6 a.m. I mean they were already up. They had their devotions. They, they, they brushed their teeth. They had their breakfast. They were ready to start working at 6 a.m. That's the first time reference, verse 1, early in the morning. And then verse 3, we read about the third hour. So that's three hours after the early in the morning. So that's 9 a.m., 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. Then in verse 5, we read about the sixth hour. The sixth hour is 12 noon. So we have 6 a.m., 9 a.m., and 12 noon. And then in verse 5, we read about the ninth hour, and that's 3 p.m. So there's 6 a.m., 
9 a.m., 12 noon, and 3 p.m. Then in verse 6, we read about the 11th hour. The 11th hour, the day's almost done. It's 5 p.m. And we know that because when we get to verse 12, one of the complaints is the last group you hired only worked one hour. Well, the day ended at 6 p.m. And that we find is our final reference in verse 8, when evening came. So you have 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 noon, 3 p.m., 5 p.m., and at the end of the workday, a 12-hour workday, you have 6 p.m. And so that's important to understand. And then one final particular here in these first sort of setup in verses 1 to 7. In verse 2, the, the farmer, the owner with his foreman agrees to pay the 6 a.m. group who's going to work the full day a day's pay, which is a denarius. Now, in their days, a denarius was a good wage for the day. It was a common wage for the day, but it wasn't cheap. It was a good wage for the day. And so as day workers, they wouldn't always get that much. But here they agree, he agrees to pay the ones he hired at 6 a.m. a denarius. It doesn't tell us for the rest. The next group he hires at 9 a.m., he says, I will pay you whatever is right. I will give you whatever is right. And they're trusting him that he'll give them some portion of a denarius, a day's wage. And each group after that trusts him in that. So that's the sort of particulars on the parable to help us kind of set it up. Now we have a problem that arises in verse 8. Verses 8 to 12 is the parable's problem. And there's a problem that happens. The, the, re, the listeners to Jesus would get it more than we would. But the problem develops in verse 8. When evening came, 6 p.m., the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. And here's where the first hint of the problem comes. Beginning with the last up to the first. Now, that would not be normal because you would think about it. Those hired at 6 a.m. have labored all day. It's been 12 hours. They want to get home. They're tired. It's been a long day. They've been, as we would say, perhaps the most faithful, the hardest working ones. So they deserve to be paid first so they can get on their way. They can go buy some food, take it home, and they can have dinner and relax. But this twist comes. Begin with the last up to the first. So the ones that have worked the longest have to wait. And so that's, again, sort of a reminder. Remember the, the proverb bookending, the last will be first and the first will be last. And so as, as Jesus tells this parable, that would catch the attention. The 5 p.m. group gets paid first. When those hired about the 11th hour, verse 9 comes, each of them receive a denarius. That's the second problem. That's the second twist in the parable. As people listening to it go, wait a minute. They worked one hour, and they get paid a full day's wage? Wow. That would have shocked them. That would have shocked the others waiting for their pay. And Jesus is telling this parable to make a point, to help his disciples understand the principle to help us. But this would be curious. You know, ever seen a dog when they get curious? You've seen the pictures? You know, what do they do? They turn their head, they turn their head, and you take pictures of them. And, and that's kind of what is happening here. You're trying, as you're hearing the parable, you should be trying to like figure this out. What's going on? This doesn't make sense. There's something off here. And the text doesn't tell us, but kind of between verses 9 and 10, the, the, the 9 a.m. group are starting actually in the reverse, the 3 p.m. group, then the noon group, and then the 9 a.m. group are all called. They're all given a day's pay, even though they didn't work a day. Each group receives the denarius. It's implied here. And then verses 10 to 12, we come to the 6 a.m. group. 
Notice that in verse 10. When those hired first came, now this is logical, isn't it? This is the way the disciples are thinking. This is the way we would think. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Why? Because that's fair. Those who work less got a denarius. We've worked more. What's fair is we should get more. Those who were hired first came. They thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. How did they respond? Thank you for the pay we agreed upon. Thank you for a day's pay. We did a day's work. Thank you. I'm grateful. And off I go to home. No. On receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. To grumble means they were bitter. They were angry. They were upset. The word itself has the idea of murmuring. It's a word that means kind of what it's, it's saying. It sounds like it means murmur and grumble. Do you murmur and grumble ever? Or am I the only one? I'm a professional at it. I've had decades of practice murmuring. You know, under your breath, muttering, muttering, murmuring, your heart's off. There's bitterness. There's envy. There's jealousy. It's not fair. You know, muttering under your breath, it's not fair, it's not fair, that's just not fair. That's what's happening here. And then they try to justify it. They're saying the last worked only one hour. And here's a key phrase. You have made them equal to us. Us who have borne the burden of the day, 12 hours. And the scorching heat, that's a word for its emphasis there. It was been, it's been a hot, hot day. And we've been out here 12 hours. Now listen, here's what they're saying. We deserve more, but you have made them equal to us. Do you see the heart sort of being revealed? You've made them, they, this is not fair. They're getting the same as we get. You've made them equal. We're not equal. We've sacrificed and served more. We've done more. We've labored. We've paid a higher cost. We've suffered more greatly. We deserve more. Now, it's an obvious problem. It is a problem. One author said, what businessman or businesswoman operates that way? paying those who only work one hour the same as those who work 12. This writer says it's irrational. And then they said this, it produces labor problems. I'm sure it would. The next day, you're saying to those 6 a.m. people, come and work for me and I'll pay you a denarius. Wait, I think we'll wait till 5 p.m. <laughs> it's producing problems. You see, there's a problem here. But again, just notice the nuances, the, the beginning with the last to the first. And then you have made them equal to us. You see, remember, Jesus is teaching a parable. The last will be first, the first will be left last. Why is he teaching? Because the apostles are struggling with, we've left everything, what's in it for us? And Jesus is dealing with a heart issue. Listen, it's a works-based mentality, not a grace-based principle. And we all struggle with that. We all struggle with that. We can identify here with the 6 a.m. group. I'm sure as even you read it, you're, just, you're probably still thinking, that's not really fair. That 6 a.m. group should get more. It's just not fair. You see, our human heart orients so naturally to jealousy and to, to this idea of everything has to be fair. And when someone gets something more than us, something undeserved, and we don't. We struggle. Have you ever found yourself saying that? God, you're not fair. 
God, this is not fair. God, I've served you and sacrificed, and all I seem to get are trials and troubles. And others don't seem to care that much about you, even though they are Christians, and it seems to go so easy. It's not fair. You're not fair. This parable presents a real problem. It does actually, can actually seem unjust because of our orientation to adding it all up in a works-based mentality rather than a grace understanding. Again, think back to the context, a rich young ruler. He weighed it all off and said, I'm not selling it all, I'm not following Jesus. Peter says, we've left everything and followed you. What will we have? And Jesus actually tells him, if anyone who sacrificed for me will see, receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But, but wait a minute. Those who have sacrificed only a little get the same as we get who have sacrificed much? Yes, the last will be first and the first will be last. That's unfair. That's unfair. Listen, God's way, God's kingdom, God's plan is all of grace. We've got to constantly mortify this works-based mentality that keeps seeping into our hearts and minds. Grace is the key here to understand all of this. Look at verse 15. The owner says, am I not, remember again, representing God, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Am I not allowed to do, of course you are. If you have $100 in the bank and it's your money, you're allowed to do what you want with that. You can take it out and buy what you want. You could give it as you want, give it to anybody you want. You could do whatever, it's yours. Am I not allowed to choose to do what I want with what belongs to me? But here's the key phrase. Or do you begrudge my generosity? Why have you made them equal to us? Do you begrudge my generosity? Why are you upset? Why are you angry? Why are you bitter? Why are you envious that I have chosen to pour out grace upon others? I've been gracious to you, but what is it to you if I choose to do that for them? Why would you take up offense to that? The point of this parable is the unexpected, unmerited, undeserved, unbelievable grace of God in our lives. But we don't value that because we think like the 6 a.m. group. I've earned it, I deserve it, and I should get more. This is a problem we have. The apostles for sure had this problem. It's the parable's problem. Now we move into the parable's purpose, our third point. We've touched on it here. I just want to drill down a little bit more on it. The parable's purpose, verses 13 to 16. Again, remember, chapter 19, verse 30, the many who are first will be last and the last first. So the last will be first and the first last, verse 16. The purpose of this parable is to drive home that truth. The purpose of this parable is to address a heart issue the disciples had and all of us struggle with. We always are adding things up. And we're thinking we earn something. We deserve something. And when others get something we don't, we're thinking that's wrong. And God, you're not fair. And it's not fair. And this world's not fair. And the kingdom's not fair. 
The disciples had this problem. They would fight amongst themselves of which of them, the great, which of them is the greatest. Just in this chapter, down in verse 20 of, of Matthew chapter 20, John and James send mama. They're going to send mother to argue that they get the best two seats in the kingdom. You see, Jesus is addressing a heart issue here. It is true the disciples gave up so much. They served so faithfully, didn't they? Most of them will die a martyr's death. They served in ways we can't even probably ever imagine. But if we're not careful, we could fall into the faulty thinking they have, which is the faulty thinking of the 6 a.m. group. I think Jesus tells this parable to say to his disciples, you're thinking like the 6 a.m. group, and you should not be. And I think most of us are in the 6 a.m. group. We deserve what we get. We've sacrificed, we've served, we've prayed without ceasing. We've given the first portion of our income. We've proclaimed Christ. We've done all these things. I've heard it just in the last couple weeks from some people who are sold out to Christ, but problems and trials have hit, and they're saying it's not fair. We've done this and this and this, and then why does this happen? And other people don't seem to already do anything for them, and their life seems so easy and problem-free. It's not fair. Why does God do this to us and others get so comfortable a life? Think about the way the kingdom works. The thief on the cross, literally, in the last minutes of his life, comes to faith in Christ, and he gets everything. Peter, who was martyred, hung upside down on a cross after unbelievable suffering and sacrifice, Paul, who was beaten, he says, I cannot even remember how many times. Could you imagine how his body hurt and ached and the scars and the pain and the thief on the cross gets the same? That's not fair. The problem is we don't understand grace. The parable's purpose here to help us understand. Listen, the owner did nothing wrong with a 6 a.m. group. He says in verse 13 and 14, friend, I did you no wrong. We agreed on a denarius, and there's nothing wrong here. Principle, he doesn't owe them anything else. And Christians, listen, listen to me. What more could you want? You have Jesus Christ. He's everything. He's all we need. Stop adding up everything. Stop doing that sort of thing with your heart that's so judgmental. turns into envy and bitter and, and anger. Yes, you've worked hard, and yes, you've sacrificed much. We do those things out of an outflow of love for Christ. But our salvation and all that we receive is all by grace. Can I just say it to you? What, what is it to you if he decides to give another everything you have and yet they haven't been that serious about their faith. Maybe they've just kind of indulged in some sinful behaviors, even though they're a Christian, and yet they receive forgiveness and reconciliation, love, acceptance, kindness, mercy, blessing, eternal life. You ever thought about that? I have. I'll confess that. I thought, man, I could have just lived a different life and it would have cost a lot less, and I still get all of that. But once we start thinking that way, we're so sinful in our thinking and so selfish in our thinking. Our Savior loves us all the same. We all receive eternal life. But so often we accuse God of being unfair. 
Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? That word begrudge is interesting. It comes from the Greek word that we get ophthalmologists from. It's a word that has to do with the eye. Maybe it's the mind's eye here, but it's some trans, uh, commentators say he's speaking of the evil eye. You know, you ever give anybody the evil eye? You know what I mean? Like you, not rolling your eyes. Some of you are professional eye rollers, but it's, it's the evil eye. It's that look could kill. And what it represents is what's in the heart. Bitterness, resentfulness, jealousy, anger. And they're looking that way at the 5 p.m. group. And they're looking that way to the master. And Jesus is calling out his disciples here, watch out, men. Watch out. Why would you begrudge or resent God's generosity? It's a temptation for all of us. Someone gets the job that you want. You've been praying about it. You think you deserve it and somebody else gets it. How do you respond? Someone gets the role in the church that you would love to have. How do you respond? Where's your heart at? You've been praying for a boyfriend or a girlfriend and someone else has a boyfriend or girlfriend. How do you respond? Or a husband or wife? Or something that's very personal for some of you and I want to be sensitive in this but you've been praying for a child. Maybe it's your first or another. And then the news comes, another woman's pregnant. How do you respond? Can you rejoice for her while the tears flow in your struggle? Or does bitterness and anger and resentment well up and you go, God, it's not fair. You're not fair. Spiritually, we need to watch and guard our hearts on this because, listen, legalists and religious people do this all the time. They add it all up. They keep track. They're works-based, not grace. In the movie The Jesus Revolution, I don't know if you saw it, the story of the revival in the 60s with hippies. I mean, out-and-out out hippies. And they hit a church in California, Pastor Chuck Smith, and the story's told, and, and it's from a biography. Um, and and it's, it's kind of interesting about one part of it is the church with long-term church people. I think most of them love the Lord, and, but dressed and acted like you know, traditional church people. And along come the hippies into their church who look anything but like they should. And, and so there's this conflict and this struggle, and, and you can see the struggle in the hearts of these Christians with these now hippies and they've, they've lived this way and dressed this way and they've been doing drugs and everything and now they're like us. And it's a genuine struggle. You see, I think the core problem is we tend to think we're the 6 a.m. group, but can I tell you every single one of us, no matter how long you've served or what sacrifice, we're the 5 p.m. group. It's all of grace. I'll say for myself, I'm the 559 group. <laughs> it's all of grace. Stop, repent from the adding it up and the works-based mentality. That will just leave you in bitterness and anger. When you feel it coming up or you say those words, it's not fair, you're not fair. Repent, repent, and go back to grace. We're the 5 p.m. group. He's calling his disciples. You're the 5 p.m. group. Just a practical way to kind of help you check your heart on this because it's so, it, it, it just seeps in and it can take root and we don't know. Just a practical way. Just a simple thing. 
Think about your growing up years and with your parents, with your siblings, if you had siblings. How did you feel when something extra, something better happened for one of your siblings? Now, you may be 15, or you may be 25, or you may be 45, or you may be 65, you may be 75, your parents are dead, and you still struggle with this. Some of you may still harbor bitterness and anger. It's not fair. My parents weren't fair. Can I ask you, where is it written that everything has to be fair? I had a boss in L.A. when I was working there going to seminary, and she was not saved, but she was a great boss. And sometimes I'd go into her office and complain and complain about something, and she finally had enough, and she'd say to me, Norm, life's not fair, and I'll get back to your desk and get to work. She would say it in a more colorful language. I can't quote her here. <laughs> but it took me a number of times where I realized God was actually correcting me because this fair thing, now, parents, be careful, be wise. It's like an employer. If you're doing more for one than another, just consider that. But listen, why do you get your nose out of joint? Why do you get so offside? If your parents, it's all theirs. You see the fighting over inheritances. The courts are filled with it. The division happens in families. Why? Because they got more than I got. Why did they make them equal to I deserve, we deserve See, even kids' birthday parties these days, every kid has to get the same thing. Why? Why? Can we not teach that you can rejoice when something good happens for another? That's grace. That's grace. What is it to you if they choose? If, what if your parents chose because one of your siblings needed something more than you did. Or they just chose for whatever the reasons were. Why does resentment reside in your heart? Why is there anger and bitterness that has wrecked you? It's because we get caught in this workspace and we don't understand grace. Listen, folks, we have all that we need. We have Jesus Christ. And it's all of grace. It's all of grace. One author said that many Christians seem to find grace boring. That caught my attention. I wonder, is grace boring to you? When grace is mentioned, eh, yeah, grace, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we sing about grace, yeah, amazing grace. It's not amazing to you. I would propose if it's boring grace because you're caught up in a works-based mentality. You think you deserve whatever you have. And you're probably harboring resentment. You're probably thinking all the time it's not fair. I encourage you in this. When we sing of amazing grace, when we think about grace, when we read about grace, it should be overwhelming grace. It should be, as one author called it, scandalous grace, that God would love me, that God would forgive me. I'm a 5 p.m. person. It's all of grace. I don't deserve what he's done for me. His kindness, his forgiveness, his gifting, his allowing me to have any role in his kingdom. It should overwhelm us in worship and praise. Let me close with a thought I had when I was writing this sermon. As I was at this point, an old hymn just jumped up in my mind. I haven't heard it forever. 
perhaps a sign of getting older. You know what I mean? I, I forget yesterday all the time, but I can remember stuff from growing up years, and more of that's happening. This hymn has a quick sort of upbeat tune. It was written in 1918, and no, I wasn't there to sing it the first time it was written. But it was written by a man, and I did the research here. I didn't remember Haldor Lillinus. He wrote about 4,000 hymns. He was a Wesleyan. This is perhaps his most famous hymn. Just as I was writing it, these words just overwhelmed me as I thought of the grace of God in my life. The grace of God poured out to one so undeserving. It's called The Wonderful Grace of Jesus. I just want to read the first verse in chorus. And I'll close with this. As I read it, think of the last will be first, the first will be last. Think of all the kindness that God has given you in Christ Jesus. And think of how undeserved it all is. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. Praise God. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free, for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus. Deeper than the mighty rolling sea, higher than the mountains, sparkling like a fountain, all sufficient grace for even me. Broader than the scope of my transgressions, greater far than all my sin and shame. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus. Do you know it? Praise his name. I pray that the cry of your heart is one of gratitude and thankfulness for God's grace. Father, we thank you for this parable, for this teaching. We thank you for the instruction here by Jesus, knowing a struggle of our heart is the same as the disciples. Perhaps some here have sacrificed greatly, served so faithfully. Perhaps some are looking at all the problems and trials, the loss, the loneliness, the suffering, and what wells up inside is that sense of this is not fair or you're not fair. God, please forgive us, forgive us. Forgive us for thinking like the 6 a.m. group. Would you cause us to constantly understand we're the 559 group? Your forgiveness and your reconciliation and your salvation and your cleansing and washing, your gifting and your calling, all of it is all of grace. It's unmerited, it's undeserved. As a wonderful song, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Help us to understand the beauty and the wonder of grace and to live in that place with hearts overflowing with gratitude, with praise, and with worship. And we pray this in our precious Savior's name.